0: and to take the Lord's Supper. And these acts are more robust when done together. Join us Sunday evenings at 5 p.m. in downtown Winston-Salem at 600 Holly Avenue. This fall, we're studying the life of David through the books of 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. And David's life is very colorful. There's probably no biblical figure that we know more about than David. David's life continues a few themes from our previous series in Hebrews too. The first is that David's life is a story, it's, it's history. I'll remind you that throughout the Hebrews series, we talked about the fact that Christianity is, is much misunderstood when we try to distill it to just concepts. It's not concepts to which we subscribe, it's a life in God. That's what Christianity is, it's a life. Uh, Eugene Peterson has a book called Leap Over a Wall, and it's about the life of David, and he says this, As we tell and listen to the David story, we're at the same time being trained in the nature of story itself as the primary literary form for receiving God's revelation. The reason story is so basic to us is that life itself has a narrative shape, a beginning and end, plot and characters, conflict and resolution. Life isn't an accumulation of abstractions such as love and truth, sin and salvation, atonement and holiness. Life, the realization of details that all connect organically, personally, specifically. Names and fingerprints, street numbers and local weather, lamb for supper, and a flat tire in the ring. God reveals himself to us not in a metaphysical formulation or cosmic firework display, but in the kind of stories that we use to tell our children who they are and how they grow up as human beings. David's inclusion in scripture is all about story. It's far too complicated to be distilled down to systems or models or platitudes. I had a seminary professor who used to caution us from letting our theology be a cloud hanging over Scripture, just plucking out ideas that we thought was the pure faith. And I think what he meant was to avoid distillation. It's tempting to take all the stories of the Bible and put them in a pot and bring it to a boil and then let the vapors rising off the pot be the pure faith. But being a human creature is messy. And it's confusing. And Scripture... Keeps all of that tension intact, especially in the life of David. When we reduce our faith to concepts or binaries, we really undercut the depth of our faith. Our faith is robust enough that it can handle a life like David's, and that should be comforting to us. David's life is a tension unresolved. It's marked by a number of failures that sometimes uh, get sort of fetishized by Christians. Uh, In November, we're going to get to some of the stories of how David treated women. And these stories sometimes uh, are used as emblems for David just being this sinner who God gives a pass to, you know, without account for the toxic harm that he does with his lust and his selfishness and his cowardice. David has victims in his wake, from Uriah to Bathsheba to Tamar. They're not characters in the story of David's life of cheap grace. They're people whose pain and shame are the result of David. So when David writes in the Psalms for God to come after his enemies, David's actually crying out for justice. Of course, he's lacking self-awareness because David's calling for the oppressed and the victimized to be avenged. And God does avenge that. And David doesn't realize that he's even calling judgment down on himself. God doesn't give David or anyone else a pass. But in his mercy, instead of taking that vengeance that's necessary for what David has done to these people and putting it on David on behalf of the victimized, God blasts himself in Jesus. David's not lucky. That's not the story of David. He's not lucky because he gets a pass from God. Rather, those, those people who are victimized by David can find comfort in Christ's sacrifice because it gives them that justice. And yet, David is also spared because God takes that punishment on himself. David's life is marked by deep human relationships. He's a lover, he is a good friend, he's a deep friend, but he's also a betrayer. His story is about relationships, which is what the Christian faith is a lot about. Humans were made in the image of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, embossed with the relational nature of God on our souls. David's life is very complex. It's romantic, it's laced with failure, it includes a lot of victory, there's transgression, there's friendship, there's music, there's poetry, but the main thing about David is that despite his inconsistent character, his life is marked by an intimacy with God. When we read First and Second Samuel, you may not understand God any better through the life of David, and you may not understand yourself any better through the life of David. But through the life of David, I think in your hearts and minds, in our hearts and minds, we'll start to see that the complex tension of God's goodness and the inconsistencies of our character can somehow coexist. And that's good news. David's a runt. He's a warrior. He's a hero. He's a king. He's a poet. He's an adulterer. He's a coward. And despite this inconsistency, His life is sheltered in God. The book of Acts describes David as a man after God's own heart. In Psalm 46, David describes God as his shelter. David's not a subscriber to God's ideas. David's life is wrapped up in God. We don't celebrate his failures as a pass that we can possibly taste as well. And we don't try to mimic his successes as models for our own life. Slaying Goliath is not a parable for our motivation, and his murder of Uriah is not evidence of cheap grace that we can also access. These stories are just simply true, human, complex history of a person who through all of that is close to God. In today's passage, uh, we get a couple of the characters that are throughout uh, David's life. We get the prophet Samuel, we get King Saul, and then we get David and his family. We're back in the Old Testament after spending the summer in the New Testament, and we're getting back into the history of Israel. So let's just, let me just give you a flyover of where we are in the Old Testament when we pick up the story of David. In Genesis, after the fall, God calls Abraham to leave his homeland And promises Abraham that he's going to set his family apart to be the people through whom God will start his restoration project. The world's fallen into brokenness after Adam and Eve. And the rest of history is God bending what we broke back toward Eden. In the book of Genesis, we get the story of the forefathers and the foremothers, Abraham's offspring who form Israel. And God began his perfect creation with two people, Adam and Eve. And through them, he wanted to do creative work of making a family and caring for a garden that would eventually spread out and become a kingdom. When that fails, God starts again with a husband and wife. And this time it's Abraham and Sarah, who through their creative work in making a family and caring for a landscape, he would again build a kingdom. So Abraham's family eventually grows into the 12 tribes of Israel. And these 12 tribes become enslaved by Egypt, but God rescues them from Egypt and takes them into the wilderness under the leadership of Moses. And in Moses' leadership, God gives the people the law and the tabernacle, which we talked about a bit in Hebrews. And these serve to help the people understand their distance from God. The law teaches them... How uh, God designed life to be. And they deviate from that design. And the tabernacle helps them worship God while also illuminating, if you remember, their distance from God. After Moses, Joshua takes over, leading Israel, takes Israel from that wilderness where they were after slavery and takes them into the promised land. The people of God, Israel, after generations of slavery and wandering, finally have a place to rest, a place to repair their relationship with God further. But instead of devoting themselves to a life in God, they become disturbingly corrupt. They do away with any ethics or morals, and they do whatever is right in their own eyes, it says in the book of Judges. Their tribal leaders are some of the worst at that. So despite Israel being set apart by God, having the law, their worship being clear, and a homeland, they disintegrate into corruption that's as bad as any time in in previous human history. Finally, Israel hopes to be unified as one nation under a king, which seems like progress, right? That's what God wants, for them to create to cultivate the land, to make families, to make a nation, and be unified under a king. He wanted the humans to be his collaborators in starting a family, growing to a people, and spreading the Eden ideal back out into his creation. And under that, Israel gets that they need a king to be unified, to have an ordered kingdom but they completely miss the opportunity. Instead of wanting God to be their king, they want a human king, so they can be like the other nations around them. And I just thought of an office episode when I thought about Israel and how they missed the point here. Early on in the the story of the office, uh, Dwight has just begun to date Angela. And she's gotten him a bobblehead likeness of himself for Valentine's Day. And he thought she wasn't really a Valentine's kind of girl. So he didn't get her anything. And he's, he's scrambling to try to figure out because he's not really understanding uh, what he needs to do to be romantic towards her. So he goes to Pam and he says, Pam, I'm dating this girl and she got me a gift for Valentine's Day and I don't know what to do. And Pam says this, okay, well, sometimes the gift is really about the gesture, you know? Like what it means instead of what it is. And Dwight responds, you mean like a ham? And Pam says, no, not like a ham. It's about doing something. And that's kind of how I picture Israel. I just imagine this exchange with Israel and Yahweh where they understand that they need to do something, which is to have a king. And, 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 uh, and Yahweh says, yes, you need a king. And, and Israel says, like a human? And God says, no, no, not like a human, not like a ham. <laughs> they're just, they're missing the point. But God, God still uh, goes along with them in this project of having a human king. And that's where Samuel enters the story. Samuel's the prophet who guides Israel toward their monarchy after the debacle of Judges. And Samuel grows up to be this impressive prophetic figure in Israel. If you don't know what a prophet is, a prophet is a righteous truth teller, often calling out sin. Sometimes, though mostly not, they tell the future. But primarily, prophets teach about God's designs, and then they point out deviations from that design. That's why in verse 4, they're nervous that Samuel's come to town, because they think that Samuel, as a prophet, is about to identify where they've gone wrong. Instead, Samuel's there to point out uh, who will be the new king of Israel. If you go back to the beginning of 1 Samuel, the parts that we're not going to get into since this is the Life of David series, uh, you would learn that Samuel's the son of Hannah, who, like many women in the Bible before her and after her, longed for a child for a long time. And then God gives her that child, this son named Samuel. And she praises God in 1 Samuel 2 with something called Hannah's Song. And Hannah's Song enumerates God's goodness, his power. And how small even the most powerful humans are in comparison to the good, great God of Israel. That's what Hannah's song is all about. So through Samuel's birth, we see this theme that God is God, okay, and humans are humans. That's a a theme that's going to be throughout the books of Samuel. Through the prophetic teaching of Samuel, we see how when humans try to live like God, they upend the perfect design of God. Next week, we're going to get into the tension of verse 1, which is, why why did God anoint Saul and then push Saul away? And that will be our welcome back gift to Ben Milner, (laughs) is to deal with that. There is something tragic and confusing about the all-knowing God giving Saul the role of king, but then rejecting him for his imperfection. What's the difference between Saul and David. They're both complicated people. They're both anointed by God to be king. Both are foolish and cruel. So the the only way we can really figure that out is to go back into the text, and I I have two guesses on what the difference between Saul and David is. The first is going back to Hannah's song. In her song, praising God for her baby boy Samuel, she sings that God lifts up the broken and he humbles the proud. David is a lot of terrible things, but in his heart of hearts over his life, he's not a proud man before God. In fact, later in his life, he will rip off all of his clothes in the streets of Jerusalem and dance madly in celebration of God's goodness and steadfast faithfulness. And people will say, you, you're crazy, and you are undignified. And he will respond, I will become even more undignified than this. I'm not sure I want to know what could possibly be considered both good and also more undignified than naked public worship by a political leader of a nation. (laughs) Nonetheless, we know that David, with all of his awful transgressions toward other humans, understands that he is a creature under the kingdom of God. In his mind, he's still an under-shepherd to the great, greater shepherd who is God. And in this chapter, it hints at a, another distinction that relates to this between David and Saul. Where Israel wants an impressive monarch, God tells Samuel not to judge on the outward appearance. God at least wants a man whose faulty character is sheltered in him. David's going to be hunted like a thief just because he's God's chosen. David will be a shrewd, unexpected victor over Goliath. David will be a man of prayer. David will be a poet, a worshiper, an epic leader. His life is exciting. And it's terrifying and disturbing. And it's inspiring. David's life is A lot like Christ. Christ found his moments of quiet with his father. He found his moments in the desert, on the Mount of Transfiguration, on boats, in gardens. Christ's life, despite being highly public, was also sheltered in the Creator. He wanted to be alone with God, and he found those spaces. And the same is true of David. And David, we're excited to, despite our struggles hide our lives in Christ. How disappointing, though, David becomes to us. The great hope of Israel to unify God's people and lead them back to Eden. The great hope becomes a terrible disappointment. David is like Christ until he's not. So is David a model for us? Is this story about us then? And the answer is no. David's not a model of triumph for us to follow after. This story is not about what God can do through us, like David with Goliath. David simply is. He's a human. He's a fool, a poet, a leader, an adulterer. Don't be excited to model early, David. And don't be relieved by the things later David does and yet escapes accountability. David's not a relief, he's not a model, he's not an anti-hero. David is just a human. You'll love him at times, you'll be disappointed in him at times, and he'll drive you, hopefully, to his chief love, what he calls the rock of his affection in times of distress all throughout the Psalms. God. David's a beautiful, complicated, charismatic leader Whose finger points to the one true God. Listen to the stories of David. Be captivated by them. And always search for where David is pointing you away from himself and toward Christ. Because David never thought that he was the great hope of Israel. That's the difference between Saul and David. David was haughty and prideful. And his transgressions merit no dismissal. But he also wrote Psalm 2. David cried out to God in a song, saying, why does the world plot in foolishness? Why do these politicians and tycoons conspire to be bigger than God? And he goes on to hope for a future king, better than himself. One who will bring compassion for the distressed, justice to the oppressed, and rescue for all of us who forget and forsake God's love. I feel sad when people think that Jesus came to teach or to model something for us, because I think that often leads us to think that the other people in the Bible are there for that reason too, and they're not. In the struggle and pain and sickness of Saul the forsaken and David the chosen, we just have two humans. They do nothing tangible for us to model or imitate. They offer us nothing except maybe that we feel like we can identify with their experience. That's about all they offer us. And that is not a lot. That makes me long for more. I need something that's going to take me back to my shelter. I don't need to just see that David had that in his life. I need help getting there. I need what the poet Christian Wyman describes this way in his poem, Lord is not a word. Lord, suffer me to sing these wounds by which I am made and marred. Savor this creature whose aloneness you ease and are. David knows my brokenness and my aloneness, but he does not live in it and repair it for me the way that Christ does. That's why Christ is our king. A beautiful, charismatic leader whose life is exciting, terrifying, disturbing, and inspiring, but never is he violent. Never does he crush the weak Never does he manipulate the vulnerable or steal for his own gain. He does the opposite. For the vulnerable scarred by powerful kings, Christ says, punish me. For the powerful kings who scar the little ones, Christ says, punish me. Christ's justice is unfair to him. Because he doesn't deserve to be punished. But it is wholly satisfying to the powerful and the vulnerable. David, for all of his flaws and glories, is not a story about David, but it's a story that points us to Christ, who is our King.